This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for accessing this episode of The Vault, drawn from more than four decades' worth of archival material from NYU's New York Institute for the Humanities. For more information on the series or on the Institute, visit our website at nyihumanities.org. That's one word, nyihumanities.org. In 1982, the composer Philip Glass presented the NYIH Gallatin Lecture at NYU. In this episode of The Vault, he discusses his relationship to theater and his turn to working with texts, particularly his work on the opera Satyagraha and his then forthcoming composition for the film Koyaanisqatsi. Mr. Glass has had an extraordinary career in American music. He has, among other things, given new life to the opera as a form, first in the work Einstein on the Beach and more recently Satyagraha. These operas combine sophisticated technical means with plain and direct expressive ends, a combination which has won Mr. Glass a wide following. Mr. Glass has also experimented with new forms of chamber music. He's managed to make electronic elements in music something more compelling than an oral experiment. He's also had a decisive, if perhaps unintended, influence on punk and new wave music. The range of his work became clear in the extraordinary series of four concerts which were recently given at Town Hall. So I'm very delighted to welcome him to speak this evening. I've decided to, uh, to talk mainly about my experiences working in, in theater. It's something which uh, has always been part of my work and has not perhaps been so well known until uh, the operas that I began doing in 1975 or 76. So that the work I did with the ensemble, which may be how many of you may know me as a performer and as a person uh, with a, uh, a performing group, I, I'm not going to really touch on that very much, uh, except to say that that, that group, which began, uh, we began playing together in 68 and 69, and that's still mainly one of the main vehicles for my work. But in many ways, and increasingly, I have thought about the theater, and I thought about the way I've worked with the theater, and about how it came about that I, I've been working in the theater. Recently, I was thinking about the different roles that a composer has in a theater work. I thought 
for me, I found that there were about four distinct ways that I found that I work, and they, and they tend to come up that way. It has a lot to do with the degree of, uh, let's say, either the degree of authorship or the degree of responsibility that I take in the work. The first way is when I simply am writing music for, I'm adding music to a theater piece that's already done. And that's how I actually, that's how many composers work in the theater, and that's actually I began uh, with uh, the Mabu Minds Group, which is a group which is fairly well known in New York now. It was a group that I began working with in 65 before we had that name. The pieces that they did were, first of all, uh, pieces written by uh, uh, their Beckett pieces that they did. That was actually the first work I did with them. And then works that they conceived themselves. In, the, in almost all cases that I work with them, I've contributed to a piece that was already done with something like Dead End Kids or um, Dress Like an Egg. These are works by uh, Joanne Acolytus. I would get a script and I would be told in an unreasonable short amount of time when I had to get it done and uh, I would deliver the tape. And uh, I would go to rehearsals, and usually the time was very, it was all very set. And basically I just, I filled in the kind of those spots. That's a fairly conventional way for composers to work in the theater. The second way, which uh, I didn't start doing until I began working with uh, Wilson in 75, was with Einstein on the Beach. In that case, I was really working as a co-author. And that was an intensely interesting, for both of us, um, a kind of an unusual experience. We, it was a question of our finding common ground to work in. We had both known each other's work. I had, well, I say we think we began working in 74, actually. We spent about a year talking about Einstein as a piece, before we even knew it would be about Einstein. And after that time, the way we began working, we just, we met every week, and we just talked. We had one meeting a week, as, on the weeks we were both in New York. And uh, over a period of about a year, we began to develop uh, thematic ideas and structural ideas for the work. That period was actually when we had to, we began with the, 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 the area, the great area of commonality for us was of course time. So we began by dividing this, the piece into, uh, into time structures. We decided rather arbitrarily that it would be four acts, that there would be the interludes which became known as the knee plays, that uh, there would be dances, that there would be choral parts. Uh, there were some considerations that I had to uh, present to Bob that he wasn't aware, for example, that the, sing, the people that were, if the people that were dancing, they were all, had to also sing, we had to give them a few minutes to rest in between, which we, they barely had time to do. There were a lot of practical things that uh, Bob had to get involved with. There were, and then on my side, there were practical things that I had to learn about, the way that Bob was designing the piece, the length of time it took to move pieces off the, on and off the stage. All of those things became very useful later on when I, when I uh, did Satyagraha. But in that work, we ended up, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a truly co-authored work. The first year we spent working together, the second year, uh, when we were actually writing the piece, we spent very little time together. At the point that we had conceived, uh, we knew what the piece was going to be about, uh, we knew how long it was going to be and who would be in it. At that point, Bob began making drawings and I began writing music, and occasionally I would call Bob up and I would play him some of the music or he would show me the drawings. The other thing, the interesting thing about the way we did that is that for some reason, we decided that we wouldn't get involved in the other person's area. For example, if Bob did a set design that I didn't uh, particularly like, I didn't say, uh, why don't you change that? Or if he didn't like some of the music, he didn't say anything about that. We had areas that we considered ourselves uh, to be totally involved with and in charge of, and that was that. And there was very little overlapping, though at one point, there was one thing Bob really couldn't stand, and I changed, and there was one thing I really couldn't stand, and he threw it out. So there was a little bit of that, but it was very, very little. For the most part, that year that we spent was more or less showing each other what we were doing. In the third stage of that work, 
uh, we actually built the piece, and that took place over a period of about four months, where the music was written. The sets by that point were, were all designed, and uh, we began a period of about three months in which we were uh, setting the, what the dancers call setting, we were setting the piece on the actors and, and the singers. That rehearsal period, we divided every day into three parts. We had one music rehearsal, one dance rehearsal, and one staging rehearsal. And uh, we did that for about four months. At the end of that time, we, we had the work really fairly well together, except for the sets. We did a preview of it here in New York, I think at the Video Exchange Theater in West Beth. And then we went to Europe and saw the sets for the first time, which was really a, a, a kick for us to see that. And then there was another two weeks when we got the whole thing happening. Another unusual thing about that work was that we, we were doing something which we really um, uh, didn't know how to do. We weren't an opera company making an opera. We weren't a theater company, really. We were just two people who were trying to get other people organized on our project. And uh, as a result, there were, oh, there were a certain amount of difficulties with getting things done on time and things being in the wrong place and that kind of thing. But the thing is that, uh, and of course we lost an enormous amount of money, which everybody knows about that. But the, the, the thing is that had we known what we were doing, of course we never would have been able to do it. Or we wouldn't have, had we known how uh, badly we would end up in a certain financial way, we probably wouldn't have, uh, we probably wouldn't have done it. So not knowing that, many, our innocence kind of saved us in a certain way. For me, it was a, a kind of a turning point for me. I don't know how, how it was for Bob. The next work I did, the Satyagraha, the opera, that was commissioned by the Dutch, who asked me if I would write a real opera. It turned out that this would be the, uh, uh, yet another way of working, which, uh, though I still collaborated with people, and then I think that's the most uh, uh, singularly, uh, I think that's the most distinctive thing about theater work, is that it is, uh, it is it's collaborative in that way, that I would take the lead in it, that I assumed, let's say, the authorship of the work or the responsibility of the work, and that I asked, I invited people to work with me. In this case, it was Bob Israel or Richard Rydell, Connie DeJong. And though um, Richard and Bob were doing the lighting and the sets and Constance did the lyrics and worked on the book with me, in fact, those roles became very blurred in certain times. There were many times that Bob Israel was involved in discussions of the staging and the setting. Uh, the one person missing from that group was the director, uh, and that's been, uh, again, it's been a problem with this kind of work. In this case, I had assumed, in a way, the most responsibility I could, in which that this was really my piece. I hired people to work with me, more or less, or got some other people to hire them. If the work came out well or it came out badly, I was going to take the heat for it one way or the other. I didn't have anyone to share it with, really, except as, uh, as collaborators. The other way that I found of working, I, be I began doing a series of pieces, of theater music pieces, for collaborators whom I, hadn't, whom I didn't know. I did a piece called a Madrigal Opera, which has so far had several interpretations. And my idea was that I would write pieces very much the way I would write for a dancer, where I didn't know exactly how the dancer was going to set the work, but often a dancer would say, well, I need a 20-minute piece or a 30-minute piece, or can I use this piece of music or whatever. But I decided, and I, I never knew what the dancer was going to do or even how it would look. And I thought that uh, this could be done in the theater too. And so I, I did a theater work. I did a, a music piece, which I conceived of as a theater work, which had no set story. It had no set design, and it had no, it had no collaborator, but it would be... A, but it would be a piece that I would invite theater people to complete. So far, it's been done twice. Once in Holland, it was there, it was called a taka. The Madrigal Opera was scored for six voices and a violin and a viola. It's not a very hard piece to put on. Uh, and that was one of the reasons I did it that way. There, it was set kind of as an autobiographical dance work. It was done in New York and Houston here under the name of the Panther. Now there's going to be a new version of the Madrigal Opera this summer in Santa Fe. I don't know what it'll be called yet. One of the things I was talking about... Uh, 
the way that I've worked uh, with the opera, and I think it goes back to my first remarks about working with Mabu Mines. The thing that's been, I guess, most uh, interesting about these operas was that I didn't uh, take a play and set it to music. Uh, which is how most operas are done. Play is written by the librettist, or sometimes it's adapted from another play, or sometimes it's created from a play, like, uh, for example, Falstaff or something like that. I can say honestly that it never occurred to me to work that way, partly because of the kind of theater people I've worked with. We're in about the third or maybe fourth generation of theater people who don't work out of a literary tradition. This is very something that we're very aware of in New York, and we're very aware in this part of New York, I might say, but it's still an idea which hasn't really found, uh, it's an idea which is, for opera people, still a very unusual idea. The first theater that I saw like this, without any doubt, the, the, uh, the most influential contemporary theater of my time, of our time, was the Living Theater, which goes back to performances I saw in the late 50s and the early 60s. Uh, the Living, as they were called in Europe, they went to live in Europe for a long time. Uh, I saw the work of Frankenstein, which must have been about a six-hour piece, done out of doors, not far from Marseille, I forget. It was a summer, a summer theater festival. The Becks, they were doing a theater that was derived from images, from ideas. They didn't start with a play. They didn't start with a written word. It was a work that was a uh, communal activity. It, was, it grew out of their working together. There is no doubt that this uh, is the forerunner of the kind of theater that we had in, growing in the 60s. People like Richard Foreman, Meredith Monk, all these people are still very, the Mabu Minds, people that are very much around. The idea that theater works could take their inspiration not from a, a, a play, but if it were Meredith, it could be, uh, Meredith Monk began, I think, well, she was just a composer, but also a dancer. It could take its inspiration from movement. Uh, in the case of Bob Wilson, his inspiration comes visually. In the case of, um, of the performance group, uh, as I know them though, uh, and, and the Mabu Minds, it came out of a way of working together. And so that, when these groups were doing a work, they were creating a work. They were creating a work from the group itself. The second big influence that began, that we became aware of, and again, this is again about the, I would say, the mid-60s, was the work of uh, the Polish Lab Theater. Uh, Grotowski was the second very big impetus to this movement. I was in Paris at the time when I think we knew his work there before it got over here. I think I saw it here at Washington Square Church in 1969 or 1970. What he had done was he had uh, taken the physical work, the exercises he had done, and, and had formalized it so that he had actually developed a, a, he had taken something which had started out perhaps as improvisation and had developed into, into a technique for developing for material. Between the Polish uh, Laugh Theater and uh, the Living Theater, I know that many of the theater people that I work with in the 60s were going to France in, the, in those summers of the, in the 60s. And there were workshops being done in the south of France and with Grotowski. And this became a very important part of their work. Uh, almost all of these theaters, the, the Schechner Group and the Mabu Mines, uh, were intensely physically oriented groups. In fact, some of the pieces that the Mabu Mines did in 68 and 69, they can't do them anymore because they're too old to do them. <laughs> they can't roll around on the floor the way they used to. I don't know if they've been videotaped or what. Some of those pieces are just kind of in a way they're lost. And it's the way that, uh, that dancers make dances for particular people. And then you take that work and you put it on somebody else's body, and this doesn't look the same. When I started working with the theater then, I was involved with these people, so that my way of working with them was uh, to participate in the, this kind of, these kinds of creations. When I then worked with Bob, when we began working on, the, uh, on Einstein, it didn't at all, uh, I found it not at all unusual to work from drawings, so to work from ideas. When we were working on Einstein, we would begin our discussions with the question, if we started, we were talking about, say, the second scene of the third act or whatever. 
I would ask Prabhupada, he would ask me, we'd say, where is Einstein? <laughs> Sometimes he wasn't there. Sometimes he was there. Sometimes he was playing the violin. But we always were looking for Einstein and I. Sometimes we found him, sometimes we didn't. In a certain way, we were very aware that the audience was going to complete the meaningfulness of the piece in many ways. I think it's Bob's particular talent to uh, be able to evoke uh, images and scenes and theatrical time and situations, which he invites us to complete them in a certain way, that uh, we almost can't resist doing it, that we fill it in somehow. When we began even working on Einstein, uh, and I had gotten the Clark biography, I think, or some other books on it, and I read a bit, bunch of stuff, and I offered Bob the books. He said, no, 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 I don't need to read it. He said, I don't want to know anything that anyone else doesn't know. He said, I just want to know what, it, what anyone would know who would be reading the papers. I found that at the time a, a kind of remarkable idea, but in a certain way, the, the, the way the piece evolved in terms of the images, uh, it later made a lot of sense to me. I, I don't think of myself as an opera composer at all. I think of myself as someone who writes operas. Put it another way, the pieces I do fit into opera houses, and I think that's much more accurate. The only reason that Einstein got called an opera at all was that that was the only place we could do it. We needed a proscenium stage, we needed theater that had about 30 pipes, we needed fly space, we needed wing space, we needed an orchestra pit. As far as I was concerned, you could put it, any, you could put it anywhere you like, but it had to have all that stuff in it. That meant that it had to be in an opera house, and therefore a lot of people just called it an opera. I preferred much more to call it music theater, uh, it happens that opera houses are ideally suited for these kinds of things, and so it's, it's gotten put in that category. The most uh, singular thing that I developed from that, in a, from a musical point of view, was the approach of working with uh, the words of sound and not to even, not to even try to, to set a text in which the words were supposed to convey uh, the meaning of what we're seeing. Uh, or let's put it this way, in which the, the meaningfulness of the opera, of, of the event, was not being conveyed by the content of the words. With uh, Einstein, the solution of using numbers was, of course, a, a ready one that, that came easily to mind, and it, it fit well with the subject. With Satyagraha, picking the Bhagavad Gita, through my, uh, through my reading of Gandhi and, and knowing that his involvement, his intense involvement with that text, he had memorized it, and he had measured all his actions against that, uh, against the, the moral teachings of the Gita. So that when I was looking for a text, and I knew that I wasn't going to have people singing and telling me what they were doing while they sung, it seemed so unnecessary for them to do it. It even seemed kind of stupid for them to do it. For example, if there's a scene where someone is burning a registration card, for them to actually sing and saying this is what they're doing, I just, I couldn't do it. So then I had to find another text, and uh, the idea of having uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita, it came to mind because it was, it seemed to me that that was something that, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, was very much in Gandhi's mind very often. as. When you memorize a text, and he had memorized it, sometimes bits and pieces of things are always kind of floating through your mind, almost involuntarily. It seemed to me that that was the relationship he had to that material, and that it would make, therefore, an appropriate vehicle for the singers to sing. Then, of course, I had to decide whether to leave it in Sanskrit or Dutch. Well, that wasn't much of a decision. The <laughs> Sanskrit is one of the beautiful vocal languages of, of, of the world. The, most of the, much of the music of South India today, the vocal music is sung in Sanskrit. We hear it in the streets of New York, if you listen for it. Hari Hari, Ram Ram, all that stuff. The book that accompanies the opera contains the historical background of the opera, which was the, the period that Gandhi spent in South Africa from 1893 to 1914. And he began his nonviolent movement. I wanted that historical period to be known since it was such an unknown period. I've recently done a work based on Hopi Indian prophecies. And I thought I'd play a little bit of that for you tonight. This is something I did for a film. I'm sorry I can't show you the film. It's a, it's a film uh, that was, uh, again, 
It's un, not unlike the operas that I've done. It's a film that has no characters in it and has no words in it. So it's a film of only images and sound. When the people that were doing the film called me two or three years ago and asked me if I would ask me to do this film music, and I, I, the first thing I said is, I don't do film music. And he said, well, this isn't an ordinary film. And of course, I'd heard that before. And I said, well, I still don't do it. And he said, well, would I come and see it? And finally, he persuaded me to come and look at it. And what I saw were images of America. And I always saw it as a portrait of America. These people are from Santa Fe. They were inspired by uh, Hopi prophecies about the condition of the land of America, of the kind of life we're living. Uh, the film for them was a way of, of showing that. It was very interesting to work with this language. I wanted to have a recording of, of a Hopi Indian speaking it, first of all. Then I wanted uh, to have, of course, I had to have that uh, transliterated into English, and I wanted a word-by-word translation of it so I knew what every word was. I, so the next thing I got was uh, I got this cassette in the mail, uh, and it was very, at first, very difficult to understand what this man was saying, even when I had the English in front of me. The, the reason I wanted him to read it was I wanted to, I wanted to hear were there natural rhythms in the language that could become part of the music. And I listened for that, and I thought I found it, and then I asked him, was it in fact the case that uh, it was like some Oriental languages, it's a language that breaks down into un very small units of meaning, which are, are syllabic, so that you can combine them and separate them very, very readily. Uh, and I asked them whether they could be separated in that way, and they said it didn't matter very much how much they were separated. So then I, the next thing was I got the singers, uh, I got a group in New York called The Western Wind, and after I'd written the piece, and we recorded it. First we recorded it, and we recorded it with, I, did, I set it for pipe organ and for voices, and recorded it and I sent it to them, and my big uh, question was whether they would, the thing was I wanted to know was whether they understood it. The curious thing about this kind of endeavor when you get involved with these strange languages is that it became very important to me that it was understandable, even though I didn't expect most of my audience to understand it. And that was true of the Sanskrit as well. We very carefully worked on the pronunciation. On a few occasions, I was able to talk to people who did know Sanskrit and told me that they could, in fact, understand when the place where the music was, was thin enough and that you could hear certain parts come out. For example, at the very end of the opera, where Gandhi is singing at the end. The first place this film was shown, by the way, was it was taken to the, the elders of the, the, the uh, I don't know how they're organized. Do they have tribes or what? But anyway, these were the people that knew what was happening, the old guys. And uh, they listened to it, and they said, yeah, that's it. They said, that's what it sounds like. So I guess I did it right. But I'm going to play it for you. I'm going to play this thing. I'm just playing the end of it. At the very end, uh, the music changes. And uh, they say the word kayanaskatsi. And that word uh, is the Hopi word, crazy life or out of balance life or the end of life, or something like that. And then, then I was told that it was a word that they used to describe a village when they left it, to, and they would go and build another village. And the film finally took that title, uh, not a very snappy title, but Kayanaskatsi, uh, try that one.
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking while listening to this that this uh, this whole subject of uh, of language and music is something which is intensely interesting to me now. Uh, I'm doing a new opera on Akhenaten, the 18th dynasty pharaoh, and uh, the question comes up again about the language. What I've done in this case, I've found text all from the Armana period, from the period that seemed to fit with the action that I'm portraying, and for the singing parts, I've I'm looking into the languages of that time through, actually I'm working with some people at a, here at the school. Arcadian is a possibility, ancient Egyptian language is another possibility, ancient Hebrew is another possibility. I may use a number of different languages of that time. I was thinking as I was listening to this uh, that opera in a way had, from Monteverdi to Wagner had, but I think of Wagner as the one that really tied the knot of language and music together, where the modulation would happen on the word that was to be endowed with a special meaning, perhaps. And with Gesualdo, I felt always the same way with his music. They were, there was a knot that they had tied that I felt that oppressed me, that I felt I had to untie for myself. Whether I'll try to retie it again, I don't know. At the moment, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still untying. They tied a very good knot, those guys. One of the things that happens that's interesting, one that knot gets untied, is that music starts to function in a very different way. With uh, this film, for example, the music becomes a container in, in one way that the images exist in. And in another way, it uh, tells us how to look at what we're seeing. It supplies an emotional content so that the, the images are no longer neutral. There's such an effect of the, uh, that the music has that in a certain way, uh, when you take, if you take, in this kind of Scotsy film that we did, uh, what we did is that we took, out the, we took out the plot, we took out the characters. And in effect, we took out the words. So all we have really are the images. And then what happens when you view it, the, the music becomes, uh, supplies an emotional point of view to what you're looking at. This is largely true in, in film, and we're not so aware of it, because there's, a, there's a, a much more important foreground of character and plot. But when you subtract those things, and all you've really got are the images and the music, the way, the powerful extent uh, that, that, that our, our, our way of looking is becomes very clear. Uh, it's almost uh, too much in a certain way. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at www.nyihumanities.org.